From the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And he told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The Gospel of the Lord. May be seated. So Moses, Moses gets a mission. He, he sees a, burst, a bush burning. He can't figure it out. He discovers that he's having an encounter. It's called a theophany in good million-dollar language. Uh, a theophany. He's having an experience of God and, that God, and God is telling Moses to go to Egypt and save my people, free them. And it's a crazy thing for Moses he doesn't feel equipped. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't even know God's name. But he does want to do what God is asking ultimately to do. And that was to go and free those uh, Israelite slaves from bondage. I think about Louis Armstrong. Go down, Moses. Let my people go. <laughs> Moses had a task, which was indeed a challenge. And it's a challenge in every generation, in every decade and century of all of human life and history. The challenge of human suffering and the relief human suffering. He was to go to Egypt to relieve the suffering of God's people to free them. Like Moses, Jesus took up the same challenge of relieving human suffering. Jesus yearned for a transformed world, turned upside down, where the significant wealthy and leaders and warriors of the Roman Empire and of the Jewish elite would be turned upside down and would be generous and humble and respectful of all people, including the poorest, the sickest, and the most obviously sinful. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed was intended to move human hearts towards greater love and compassion, to love God with all our heart and mind and soul, and to love neighbor as themselves, to move human hearts towards greater love and compassion. But it became very clear to Jesus that the world 
was not turning upside down, but was in fact hardening their hearts. And his life was threatened. He goes to Jerusalem. He will be killed. He saw what was coming. And we heard it in that text. And he says, he's, he tells his disciples that I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And Peter, his dear friend, who cares about him, rebukes him. Now, the word rebuke is hostile, angry, hostile, like you're talking to an enemy. He rebukes him, and, and Jesus is shook up a bit, unnerved, and says, get behind me, Satan. He calls his dear friend Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Sometimes we think we understand Jesus. Or other times, we really don't understand Jesus, but we're not even aware of it. We need, from Jesus, the straight truth, unvarnished. The truth Jesus, in his life, at this moment of his ministry, what he was facing was unvarnished. It was coming. He was to die. And in that moment of intensity, Jesus tells Peter the truth about himself. Peter was undoubtedly humiliated, crushed. Jesus called him Satan. What does one rightly do when thus humiliated? There is a need to lament, to feel the sadness and the loss and perhaps the embarrassment or shame. I went to seminary in New York City from 1986 to 1989. And uh, the general seminary is in Lower West Side, 9th Avenue and 20th, Chelsea District. And in your second year of seminary, back in those days anyway, uh, you were assigned a field placement. And a field placement meant, meant that during that entire nine month to the two semesters of that year, uh, I would be a sort of an assistant, a seminarian assistant at a smaller congregation called St. John's in Montclair, New Jersey. And so for me to get to St. John's Montclair, it meant that I would walk from 9th Avenue and 20th uh, up to 8th and 23rd and take a subway up to the Port Authority. In the Port Authority, I would take a bus over to Montclair, which would get me there at 7.30 in the morning. So the first sermon that I was going to preach was about this time of the year. 36 years ago in 1987. So I'd spent a lot of time on this, this particular sermon. I was, uh, I was pretty proud of it. You know, I really felt like I've got, this is what I want to say. I've done, I've got it. Uh, I had my old Macintosh and a cheap printer and I could barely read it, but I had it. And so I had my backpack. No, there were no backpacks. I had a briefcase. An old Texas oil and gas briefcase. And so I put my precious sermon. Oh, I was ready to go preach that sermon, right? I took that precious sermon and I put it in the briefcase and put my prayer book in the briefcase and some other things. And I go, I'm ready to go. So I go down the stairs. And as I open the door to, 
to be out on, kind of out on the porch with steps going down to 20th. I caught something out of the corner of my eye and I looked over there and there was a little area set aside with a kind of a, a, a short wall around it with trash cans. And I realized as I looked over there, I locked eyes with a woman who had opened up the trash and what I saw, the second I looked at her, what I saw was she was taking spaghetti out of the garbage and, 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 and was literally bringing it to her mouth when, I, when we locked eyes. And we maintained eye contact because, first of all, I was embarrassed for her. I was sort of repulsed in that moment. And so I, I felt myself start kind of trembling like, do you know? I, 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 and, but we were still making this contact, and, and she says, says to me, kind of like, "Who do you think you are? You're one of those God boys, aren't you?" And he, she points over to the seminary. "You're one of those God boys. You don't know God, and God don't know you. Now just get on and go." Now, I had a whole range of, of emotions at that point. I was angry. I mean, I was really upset. I mean, it, it and repulsed, and, and consequently, I realized I've just got to go. I've got to go get on the subway. So I've got my briefcase, and I'm, I'm walking, and I'm very, very anxious and just sort of replaying the whole thing in my mind. <coughs> And uh, I get on the subway, I take the bus across the river, and land on time at St. John's Montclair, and I go into the church, and I'm, I'm really unnerved because I've got this sermon that suddenly doesn't mean anything to me at all. And I, the director asked me, well, you ready? Have you got your sermon ready? I said, I did. I did, but I don't. And I don't really know what I said in that sermon, I, I, I know I must have said something about what I just experienced. But I was busted up. I mean, I really was. I, knew, I realized in that moment, I knew something about God. I knew something about Jesus, enough to write this precious sermon. But I hadn't reckoned with the Lord of the homeless and the hopeless. I felt like a fraud with my precious sermon in my back in my briefcase. Even today, I can picture her. I sense the power and the truth in that encounter. And it reminds me always when I think about her to never get too proud of myself or too sure of myself. An inner recognition that I should submit my heart to God over and over. Perhaps every time I pray the confession here with you and elsewhere. To give my heart to God and my life to God. Every time I take the Holy Communion. Now, we're all different. But we all have known that desert place, that wilderness where we are really hurting and down on ourselves. Perhaps you carry some sort of a similar experience in your hearts where you became aware of 
your sense of entitlement or thinking that you understood something and believed it so deeply then having that taken away from you in some way. Prejudice or greed or something that you just realize that there is an aspect of my life that I need to offer to God and to lament what I've been through. Sometimes we need to raise our wounded hearts and wet eyes up to God and say, Lord, I know you love me, but have mercy on me because there's pain and I'm hurting. And I remember apologizing that I adopted a self-serving vision of God. It created a God my size and with my concerns alone. So sometimes we do need to just lament. And there's a song of, of lament that's in our prayer book and, and I'd like to sing that song very briefly. It's called the Trasagion. And it's about asking for mercy for us. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy on us. Holy God, Holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy and mighty, Holy immortal one, have mercy on us. Jesus told his disciples, if you wish to be my followers, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Recently, I've been in touch with some friends that go back to the late 80s. And Jay, one of them, uh, had a gastrointestinal situation that arose. <coughs> And he was, got pretty sick. They treated him. He got sicker. He went to the ER. He went into the hospital. He spent 30 days. He spent 60 days. And he wasn't getting well. And he had a dental practice. And he uh, told his wife, I'm not sure I'm going to survive. And so-and-so has been wanting to buy the, buy the practice and sell it. I'll sign whatever you bring me. So they sold the practice. And... He's there for 30 more days, and he starts getting better. And on the 100th day, he's not himself. He's not fully healthy, but he's able to go home. And he goes home, and he's, he's struggling with it, but he's getting just a little bit better. And one morning, he woke up. He woke up and went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror and busted out laughing. He just started laughing. And he began to just talk about, I, I am alive. I'm alive. 
have a wife and children and grandchildren and friends I haven't seen and I want to see. And I don't have a job. <laughs> when we are indeed alive, we can lament our sufferings and our sins and the suffering of the world and simultaneously rejoice that we are indeed alive even as we are inevitably headed, each of us, toward that moment when we will not be alive. And this is a mystery, the mystery of our end days. Do we lament our aging? Sometimes. Most of the time, not. But we each have our own story. We each have our own life, wherever we are in our lifespan. And in that life that we have, that we are, because we are alive, we can say, give, we can give thanks. Give thanks to God with a grateful heart. We can do that because God's gift to us is life. So St. Paul, in our lesson from Romans, is all really wound up about love. <laughs> He's just so excited about it. Let love be genuine. Love what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo each other in showing one another honor. Be zealous. Be ardent. Serve the Lord. We're at a pep rally, right? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, to the others those that need what we have. Extend hospitalities to strangers. Rejoice in hope. And then we're reminded of Jesus who invited in the kingdom of God and in his prayer life and in his teaching to turn the world upside down. This, what I'm about to say is upside down language and understanding. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Live peaceably. What he's saying is life is hard and life is magnificent. And love and, and lament, there are times, yes, they come and go, when we find ourselves on our knees asking God for mercy, perhaps even singing for mercy. And there are times, yes, and they come and go, where we look into the mirror and break out laughing, not taking ourselves so seriously and just laughing at life that we have it. Because... Because we are alive and are God's children. And Paul so ambitiously told the Romans, let love be genuine with mutual affection, zealous in spirit. It's all about love. It is all about love. What is it we say here? If it's... If it's say that together. It's... That's right. That's right. Love is the source of God's being. And Jesus, the human face and beating heart of God, is the author and creator of the deepest and greatest love. 
love bestowed from the cross, which changed everything and offered us all things. So, as Paul and John and George and Ringo rang out, all you need is what? Love. All you need is what? Love. Well, let's stand up for that kind of love. Let's sing. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Amen. Give 